So the reading this morning comes from uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 11, uh, which is in the NIV on page 1158. So it's 2 Corinthians 1, verses 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God in Corinth, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us all in our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the suffering of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Thanks, Neil. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this amazing passage that has spoken to people down the centuries of your love and your comfort and your peace and your strength. And we pray for ourselves today, particularly we pray for those of us that are really struggling just now, who feel at the lowest of the low, whose emotions are just, just low and whose strength is completely gone, who's, who's, who've almost come to the end of themselves. And we're asking, Father, you, for you to breathe life and hope into those lives today. So would you come amongst us by your Spirit and move? And may we leave this place different to how we arrived. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Libby signposted and Emily very, very articulate, uh, very well articulated, we are going through this book of 2 Corinthians, which deals with one of the most profound subjects that we face as human beings. It deals with the whole subject of suffering. Some people sometimes get the idea from some Christians that if you become a Christian, 
then life will be fantastic from now on. That everything will go your way. You, you get healthy, you get wealthy, every relationships are fantastic. It, life just becomes amazing. The reality, of course, is that life is not like that. Life, as we've found in the last couple of years, many of us, is hard and is tough. And particularly for millions of Christians around the world, particularly at the moment, life is getting more and more tough. There are nations in this world where it is almost a death sentence to own the name of Jesus, where suffering is not parking charges, it's actually a death sentence and a firing squad. That's the reality for Christians in this world that we live in, in the here and now, and it was the reality for the Christians in Corinth that Paul was writing to. And what we hope to do in the next uh, few weeks is go through this book and see why Paul was able to write in the way that he did, and also why it's so important for us to hear at this time. One of my favorite films, it's a film that I go back to again and again, is the film City Slickers. Uh, It stars Billy Crystal, and uh, Billy Crystal and two of his mates are facing a sort of midlife crisis because of their relationships and because of their careers. Uh, Each of them are in different places, and they decide to go on what's called a dude ranch in America and become cowboys and to join uh, a cattle trail, taking hundreds of cattle, and they're all city dwellers. They live, work in marketing and different jobs like that. And, and to, to, for the next two weeks, to, to help move this herd of cattle uh, towards uh, market. Um, I don't know what it is about a film about someone in their middle life who's uh, thinking about whether, what their life has been about and whether their career has been worth it, but something uh, in its appeal to me. Um, and I've watched it again and again. And uh, having had the privilege of actually going on a dude ranch about 20 years ago, some friends who were living in Texas paid for us to go out there as a family and took us for a weekend onto a dude ranch, I have a bit of empathy for what Billy Crystal and his mates went through. But about halfway through the film, they're joined by this character who's on screen with Billy Crystal, played by the actor Jack Palance. He's an old, wizened, experienced cowboy called Curly. And Billy Crystal and his mates are absolutely terrified of Curly. And at one point, uh, Billy Crystal and Jack Palance ride off to go and look for one particular calf that's got lost. And they start to talk about what life is really like and what life is really all about. And Jack Palance's character, Curly, turns to Billy Crystal and he just holds up one finger. And he says, that is what life is about. And Billy Crystal says to him, well, what's what's that? What is that one thing? And Jack Palance's character, Curly, says, that's for you to figure out and rides off. Now, having been on a dude ranch and been on a horse and been concerned basically about two things for that entire weekend, one, was I going to fall off the horse? And two, were the vultures that were circling and following me wherever I went about to come down and eat me? I was concerned about those two things. But Billy Crystal spends the rest of the film and probably the rest of his life trying to find out what is that one thing? What is that one thing that will make a difference? What is that one thing that life 
is all about. Our culture tells us and sells us stuff on the belief that there is one thing that we can read or listen to or watch or wear that will make a difference. At this time of the year, perhaps, it might be a new gym routine. It might be a new diet. It might be a new habit or a way of thinking or behaving that somehow we think will magically change our lives. It might be a new phone or a new computer. It might be a new exercise class. It might be coconut milk or mushroom coffee or, or how long we can do a plank for. Um, maybe the thing that somehow we think will transform our lives. Self-help books fly off the shelves in the first week in January and lie discarded by the third week of January where we are. And in this second letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul is setting the record straight about a few things. He's setting the record straight about his mission, he's setting the record straight about his message, and he's also setting the record straight about his character. He has a very, very complex relationship with this church in Corinth. I mean, again, sometimes people quote or read the New Testament and they think, if only we could be like the New Testament church. At which point I want to say, have you read any of the New Testament? Because I don't think I want to be part of a New Testament church. There were divisions and there were quarrels, there were fights. Communion was like a sort of rugby scrum with orgies happening in the, in the stairwell. I mean, it was just carnage. So any idea that somehow we should hold up the New Testament church and say we should be like that just means that you probably haven't read, really read, what the New Testament church was actually like. And Paul had a particularly complex relationship with this church in Corinth. He'd stayed there for a year and a half, planting it and establishing it and teaching it. But then his relationship with them had been a bit tricky at times. Um, there'd been a lot of opposition in Corinth, and a lot of people in the church had been opposed also to Paul. And he just had what he describes in verse 1 of chapter 2 as a painful visit um, I used to work for UCCF with uh, students, and I often would describe a visit to a particular university called Warwick as a painful visit. It was just tortuous for them and for me. Paul's relationship with the church in Corinth was a tricky one. It was a painful one. They didn't like him, and he wasn't that keen on them. This is the Apostle Paul and a group of Christians in Corinth. But if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you'll see that time and time again, Paul is, is having to rebuke. He's telling off the church in Corinth. He's addressing questions of division and all sorts of things that are happening, which are not exemplary at all in the church in Corinth. And now he's writing this letter to them before he goes back for a third time. And he explores this whole subject of suffering. Now, if there was one place that should be able to sympathize and understand this whole subject, it was Corinth. 200 years before, the city of Corinth had been completely wiped off the map. All the men in Corinth were executed. There'd been a rebellion, a revolt, and all the adult males were killed in Corinth. All the women and all the children were sold into slavery. And basically, all the buildings have been razed to the ground. 
And now it had been rebuilt as a Roman colony, and it, and it had been repopulated with people from Rome, people who were ex-soldiers, people who were ex-senators, people who moved from Rome to Corinth. There were about three-quarters of a million people who lived in Corinth. So it's a bit bigger than Edinburgh. But over half a million of the people who lived there were slaves. And the church reflected that. It wasn't a very well-off church. There were some well-off people in the church, people like Priscilla and Aquila and some business people. But in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, not many of you were wise by world standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. Because the church, like most churches, reflects the context that it found itself in. So three-quarters of a million people in Corinth, over half a million of them are slaves, and the church reflects the place that it's in. And they're well acquainted, therefore, with suffering, with pain, with oppression and struggles. And in seeking to establish or re-establish his credentials, Paul focuses on this one thing, how much he has suffered. He doesn't talk about the churches that he's planted. He doesn't talk about his achievements. He doesn't talk about his educational qualifications. He doesn't talk about his Jewish inheritance or his uh, credentials of being in the Sanhedrin, which is like sort of the, the ruling uh, class of, uh, of the Jewish nation. He doesn't talk about that at all. He focuses on one thing, how much he has suffered. It's quite an unusual CV for him to present to the church in Corinth. And the word that occurs again and again is a word that's translated in English in the NIV as troubles or in the RSV afflictions. And it's the Greek word philipsis. And it has a particular sense. It occurs more, uh, well, it occurs 45 times in the New Testament, but it occurs more in 2 Corinthians than in any other part of the New Testament. And it occurs more in this passage than anywhere else in 2 Corinthians. And Paul talks about suffering more than any other writer in the New Testament. And Paul talks about God's comfort more than anywhere, anybody else. It occurs 10 times in these verses and seven times in this letter out of 31 times in the whole New Testament. Because Paul has suffered more, he talks more than anybody else about God's comfort. You see, if you're going to speak about God's comfort, you're going to speak with real authenticity if you've suffered. And Paul knew what it was to suffer for being a Christian. He knew what it was to suffer for doing what God was asking him to do. In 2 Corinthians alone, there are four lists where Paul talks about how he suffered. So in chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, chapter 6, verses 3 to 10, and chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, Paul lists how and when and why and what he'd suffered. And if you read these four lists, well, it's quite surprising. There are shipwrecks, plural, Tom Hanks, eat your heart out. There are shipwrecks, plural. There are drownings, plural. There are beatings. There is prison. There is hunger. There is poverty. There is despair. 
Paul lists again and again and again how doing what God has called him to do means that time after time after time after time, whether it's the hand, at the hands of individuals, whether it's at the hands of a city, whether it's at the hands of a state, or whether it's at the hands of the church, Paul knows what it is to suffer, to go through really, really hard times. There are different types of suffering. If you want to read an excellent book, read Tim Keller's book on suffering and the nature of God. Really, really helpful book. But in that book, Keller talks about the fact that there are different types of suffering in the world. Paul could say, yep, I can tick every box because I've been through it. I've experienced it. I felt it. I know what it's like to go through this. And that's why it's perhaps surprising and striking that Paul begins his letter in verses 3 to 7 by praising the God of comfort. Jewish letters often would begin with a sort of blessing at the start. Praise be to the God. And, and Paul begins with one of those blessings and says, Praise be to the God of all comfort and of all compassion. That's the way that he describes the God that he knows. The God that he knows is a God of all comfort and all compassion. It actually refers to him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of all compassion and the God of all comfort. It's not just who God is, it's what God does. God's character leads to action. It doesn't remain a theory or a doctrine or a belief. It plays out in the, the way in which God responds to human beings and the way in which human beings respond to God. They, they experience God. They feel God. They don't just know intellectually. They experience in their everyday life God to be a God of comfort and compassion. Paul writes, verse 4, he comforts us in all our troubles, and Paul says, he comforts us so that we can comfort others. So you see, right at the start of the letter, Paul is saying, making it very clear, that if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you will suffer. If you watch some Christian TV channels, they will sometimes give you the impression that as I said at the start, become a Christian, everything will be fine. Everything will be dandy. Life will be easy. That is not New Testament Christianity. The so-called health and wealth gospel is not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is utterly realistic. You want to be a follower of Jesus, you will suffer. It's in the job description. So if you're going to sign up to be a follower of Jesus, you need to know what you're signing up to. It means that you will suffer, not just in the way that everybody who's part of the human race suffers, but you will also suffer particularly for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And it was totally countercultural. It's countercultural now, and it was countercultural then. In the ancient world, at the time when Jesus lived, at the time when Paul was writing, disease or illness, or sickness, or unemployment, or poverty, were all taken to be a sign of divine displeasure. 
That's why you prayed to the gods. You had as many gods as you could have in a Roman household, in, in the foyer, and the lounge, and you, you had different uh, idols and, and sort of statues set up to, to pray to the different gods so that your harvest would be good, so that your family would be safe, so that your health would be healthy. You did deals with the gods, and you did deals with God so that your life would go swimmingly, so that your life would be easy, so that your life would be the way that you meant life to be lived. But you see, being a follower of Jesus is not, that's not what it's about. It isn't about getting God to do the things that we want him to do. It's about submitting our lives to who God is and living our lives the way God intended for us to live. And it's still countercultural. It's surrendering control of our lives. It's not prayer. Isn't, as you heard Emily speak earlier on, prayer is not about getting God to do what we want him to do. It's about us doing what God wants us to do and about asking God to help us be the people that he wants us to be where we are. Even in Judaism, there's a popular belief that illness could be equated with God's judgment. If you know the New Testament, think back to John chapter 9, where the, uh, Jesus encounters a, a guy who's blind, and the people around him ask this question, who has sinned, this man or his parents? There must be a reason why this guy is blind. Somebody somewhere has done something wrong, and that's why he was born blind. It's either him or it's his parents, because illness was a sign of divine displeasure. So it crept into Judaism, and it was certainly there in the early church. People in Corinth and across the Greek and Roman world held certain values very highly. There were four or five of them. They might sound familiar. Firstly, there was a rugged individualism that valued self-sufficiency. Secondly, money was seen as the key to status and influence. Thirdly, there was the need to constantly boast of your achievements and possessions. Fourthly, a competition for recognition and honor that viewed boasting as the natural way to behave. And fifthly, a pride in where you lived as showing your place in society. Haven't we progressed a long way in 2,000 years? Because each of those five values are still present in our society, in our culture, in 21st century Scotland, and particularly in Edinburgh today. A rugged individualism that valued self-sufficiency, money as the key to status and influence, the need to constantly boast of your achievements, a competition for recognition, and a pride in where you lived as showing your place in society. So what does Paul do when he's trying to commend himself to this church in Corinth 
He doesn't speak about his achievements. He doesn't speak about where he lived. He doesn't speak about his money. He doesn't speak about his accomplishments. He speaks about troubles. He speaks about distress. He speaks about persecution. He speaks about martyrdom. He speaks about beatings. He speaks about drownings. He speaks about shipwrecks. He speaks about all the hard stuff that he's gone through. And then he goes on to talk about things like comfort and patience and endurance. These were not things that Roman or Greek or even Jewish society particularly valued. As part of my sabbatical in November, for which I'm very grateful that the church does this, they give us uh, six or seven weeks every uh, four years, and it's been one of the reasons why I've stayed as long as I have. That may be a reason for you to think it's not a good thing. Um, but it's just, it's a gift from the church to have five, six, seven weeks where uh, as ministry staff we can take some time out and think and read and pray and just reflect on uh, what God is saying to us. As part of my sabbatical in November, one of the books that I read put forward an idea that I had never seen before as to why the early church and the church in the first and second and third century was able to grow in the way that it did. And it was a very surprising answer, one that I had never considered. And the, the early church in the first, second, and third century did grow at a remarkable rate. It grew, conservative estimates put it at about 40% every decade. 40% every decade, the church in the Middle East and the Near Eastern world grew by that much every 10 years. And up in the first two or three hundred years, the, the growth was just remarkable until Constantine adopted it as the official religion of the Roman Empire. And the book by a guy called Alan Crider puts forward the idea that it wasn't the usual suspects that we think enabled the church to grow. It wasn't, controversially, the power of prayer. It wasn't spectacular demonstrations of the work of the Holy Spirit, healings and exorcisms and deliverance, etc. It wasn't the things that we would normally go to. It wasn't things like evangelism. It wasn't things like the early Christian's version of the Alpha Course. This writer says that it was one particular thing that they cultivated that enabled them to survive, and not just survive, but also thrive. And it was one fruit of the Holy Spirit, patience. And as soon as you think about that, you then read the list of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that occur again and again. And even in that passage that Neil read for us that we're looking at this morning, you see the word patience or patient endurance come again and again and again and again and again. And this writer, this academic, says, if you look at what the early church fathers, they're called, wrote, they wrote three long essays, treaties they're called, on patience. They only wrote one on evangelism. Now, patience was as countercultural then as it is now. If you were to take a look back over the last six or seven days and rate yourself for patience, what mark would you give yourself? 
Think back to that traffic jam. Think back to that queue in Lidl or Aldi or Waitrose or John Lewis or Marks and Spencers or whatever shop you found yourself in. Think about that situation where you stood there next to your microwave oven thinking, How, why can't it go quicker? We are not a society that cultivates patience. And yet, just as in the early church, we are in more in need of it perhaps than ever. This patience led them to endure persecution, martyrdom, death in the arenas. And when a plague or an epidemic came to a city, it was patience that enabled the Christians to go in the opposite direction, literally to where everybody else was going. When everybody else was leaving a city because of leprosy or a plague or an epidemic, the Christians were going the other way to look after the people who were sick and who were ill and who were dying because they had cultivated patience. And patience led to endurance. And endurance then leads to hope, Paul says. And what's striking again and again is that the, the early Christians do not say, listen. And the early Christians do not say, read. The early Christians do not say, hear. The early Christians simply said, look. Look. Look at the difference that Jesus makes. Look at the difference that Jesus has made to my life. Look at the difference that Jesus makes to the, how we treat people who are ill and sick and dying. It wasn't read. It wasn't listen. It wasn't hear. It was look because they were living demonstrations of the difference that Jesus had made to them. And then quickly, verses 8 to 11, Paul writes about a God of deliverance. He doesn't mince his words, verse 8. He describes himself as being under great pressure. And there's two ideas associated with this phrase. One is a popular form of torture in the ancient world where a large boulder would be placed on a person's chest with the result of a crushing pressure that would literally squeeze the light out after them. And the other is of a ship being weighed down by ballast, crushed, Think of a submarine on the, on the bottom of the seabed being crushed by the weight of the water around them. That's the picture that Paul is using here. He says, I was under great pressure. I was almost crushed. In fact, I thought I was dying. I was living under a sentence of death, he says. Verse 9. He'd come to the end of the road, as Tom Wright describes it, a sentence of death from within, from within his own being. One of the tragedies that's been happening over the last few months, maybe you've been aware of this, is of, of people sadly committing suicide, taking their own lives, because their mental health has become so affected by what we've gone through. Now, I felt pretty low in my life at times, but I have never come near the point where I think I've come completely to the end of my tether where I believe that there's a death sentence almost from within. That's what Paul is describing. That's what we're seeing, sadly, in the lives of people around us just now. Because our resilience has gone, because of what we've gone through over the last two years, because our resources are depleted, because as human beings we were meant to connect with each other, we were meant to touch each other, we were meant to see each other face to face. 
not behind masks, necessary though it's been. Paul says it was beyond our ability to endure. Literally, it was beyond our own strength. And we despaired of life itself. There was no exit or way of escape that he could see. But Paul says this happened, that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God. When he came to the end of himself, he discovered there was more of God to discover and rely upon. Now, that was Paul's experience, and it gave him a hope. He describes the hope in verse 7 as firm. The word means guilt-edged, secure, guaranteed. It's a financial and legal term. And the hope gave so much energy that it felt as though Paul had been brought back from the dead. He describes the God of resurrection who brings life from the dead, and that's what it felt like for Paul. So I'm going to invite the, the band to come up and for, to give us a moment just to think about what does this say to us where we are now? If we were to take an honest look at ourselves this morning, where would we come in some of the things that Paul has been speaking about? Are we at a point where we feel near the, near the end of our tether? Has it been our experience that when we come to the end of ourselves that there is actually more of God to discover? Or if we're honest this morning, does God seem miles away? Secondly, how do we respond when trouble or pressure, afflictions come our way, when our prayers don't seem to be being answered in the way that we think they should? Someone said once, anybody can worship Santa Claus. Anybody can worship a God who does things that you want him to do. The hard bit is trusting in God when your prayers are not being answered how or when you think they should be. Are you, am I, still willing to trust God in those moments? And then thirdly and finally, are we able to share and are we sharing the comfort that we have received with people around us? That incredibly helpful picture, very powerful picture of, of what Mark prayed for Emily when she was going back into the classroom. May your classroom be a sign, a place of the kingdom of God. Will where you be this week, on Tuesday afternoon, on Wednesday morning, on Thursday evening, will they be places where the kingdom of God is evident because you are there? Will you be able to say, not read, not hear, but look? And are you sharing the comfort that you are receiving from God with the people around you. Would you stand? And we're going to pray together. Father, thank you that you know everything about us. You know the reality of our situations this morning. Even how we're, how we're really feeling. That no matter what we pretend to ourselves or pretend to people around us, you know the reality of our situation. Some of us are in a good place, but some of us aren't. Some of us have 
almost given up this morning. If we're honest, we don't really know why we're here. For some of us, the last two years have just taken their toll and we're exhausted. And we need your comfort. We need your strength. We need your peace. We need your power to move in us. If we're going to comfort other people, we need to be comforted first ourselves. So we're asking Holy Spirit, the great comforter, the one that Jesus promised, would you come now afresh into this place? And where we feel tired, where we feel weary, where we feel at the end of ourselves, where we feel hopeless, would you pour hope and life and faith and peace into us now? As we're honest with you this morning, Lord, and we are all that we are. We're asking for you to be all that you are, not all that we sometimes dictate to you or limit you to, but we're asking for you to be you, the God of all comfort, the God of all compassion, and for you to pour out your Spirit that we might be comforted and so that we might comfort others. In Jesus' name.